Well, if you haven't already turned there, please turn to Paul's epistle to the Galatians. We'll be looking at the verses Carol just read for us, chapter 4, verses 12 on through verse 20. As you turn there, I want to tell you how great it was to worship God together with many of you on the beach on Easter morning this past Sunday. It's wonderful to to gather with you at 5.30 in the morning to see the sun rise and to remember our Savior, Jesus, who rose from the dead, who is alive today and every day. It was a joy to be with you. It was a joy to hear the testimonies of the ten individuals who were baptized there on the beach. And it was great to see and to hear how most of them had become believers uh, here with us at Redeemer over the past few months. So it was a tremendous encouragement to me. Well, I want to highlight one thing Tom said at the outset of the service. Next Friday evening, uh, we'll gather together again for a special evening worship service. So we'll have our normal service in the morning, and then we'll have one at 5 p.m. in the evening with some food, and then the service. It's not a, a replay of what happens in the morning. It's a, an additional and extended time of worship through song, teaching, and prayer. And it's not a members meeting, so it's open uh, to everyone. Well, if you're new to us, or you've missed any time recently, let me summarize where we've been in Galatians for you. There are false teachers on the loose. They're in Galatia. They're threatening the people in the church, encouraging them to leave the church. They had a message, yes, believe in Jesus. Jesus is is good, but I also want you to obey the law. Jesus plus law... Equals salvation. You do both if you want to be saved. Well, Paul repeats himself again and again in Galatians, doesn't he? Building your life of the law is like building a foundation on quicksand. Eventually it'll sink. Paul says salvation comes from believing in Jesus alone. Nothing else. Jesus plus nothing. But today's section, these nine verses that were just read and that we're preaching on today, we see something totally different from Paul. It's the most personal section that we've read. It's incredibly personal. What Paul writes here may be the most personal verses he's written in any of his letters in the Bible. So far, it's been truth, 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 truth. And then now, all of a sudden, in the midst of the truth, Paul lets us see his heart. There really isn't any new theology in these verses. He doesn't advance his argument with a new theological defense. He isn't even really sermonizing. But he pours out his heart. And in the midst of this personal appeal, he lets us see two things about his ministry and about our ministry. He gives us some incredible insights into the nature of ministry. Let me give you those two points up front. First... We'll see the minister's goal. The minister's goal. And second, Paul will show us the strategy of false teachers. The strategy of these false teachers. Well, first, let's start with the minister's goal. Now, I use the word minister, but that doesn't just apply to whoever is a formal minister in a congregation. It applies to all elders, to all leaders, to all members and to all Christians. All believers are meant to be ministering to others. First Peter chapter 2 speaks of the church as a priesthood of all believers. And indeed we are. 
In this way, the church is like a tabernacle in the temple in the Old Testament. God has set apart his church and filled each believer with the Holy Spirit. And so that we might embody his presence on this earth. As we minister the word of God, the spirit of God tabernacles among us. As we pray to our Father because Jesus has made a way for us to enter the Holy of Holies. We are all, as Christians, ministers of the gospel. And Paul shows us five things regarding the minister's goal. Therefore, five things regarding the Christian's goal as they minister. First, that he's concerned about others. The minister is concerned about others. Up until now, Paul has been handling this situation with a bit of academic distance. Like a lawyer with a tremendous intellect who comes into the court defending his case. You might even say, so far it's been all head. No heart. Doesn't even greet them in the letter. He just starts firing away at them. But these Galatians whom he had previously called foolish and the bewitched, he now calls them brothers. And he uses a phrase for the Galatians that he never uses for anyone else. It's down there in verse 19. He calls them my little children. If he was reading this letter out loud, the tone of his voice would have changed in this section. He speaks in a tenderness in a way that a parent speaks to a child who's in deep pain. You as the parent, you may have laid down the law the night before. You may have sternly disciplined your child for overt disobedience. But then the next morning you wake up and rather than going to them again sternly, you go to them with a loving and personal tender appeal encourage them to change their ways because you love them and care about them brothers my little children i entreat you i implore you i urge you i beg you resist these false teachers Paul's not even giving them seven reasons from the Old Testament as to why they're wrong. He's just begging them not to do it. Do this for me. It's a personal cry. And he tells them, I love you so much and care about you so much that this is destroying my heart. He's in such anguish that he compares it to the anguish of childbirth. Experientially, he's in agony. Now, I've never given birth to a child, but I've been very, very present with each of the births of our four children. Giving birth must be painful because the pain looks like it just consumes the woman. She can't even consider anything else besides what's going on in that specific moment in her body. Some of you may remember the shock I received when last year our fourth child came early and quickly. And I had to deliver our son alone at night in a surprise birth. Many friends remarked, oh, how great it was that Gloria was your wife. Because she had already given birth to three children. And she was a doula. Which means she knows how to help other women give birth to their children. So Gloria was probably just a wonderful help to you in that moment. Well, my first remark was that my, my wife couldn't and didn't do anything to help me. 
The first time I asked her to help, she just yelled at me. And she looked at me and just said, just pray. I thought, well, sweetie, that's really good advice. The Bible says to pray without ceasing. But something tells me right now I should do something else too. But from that point on, just silence from my wife. I stood there terrified in fear, awaiting instruction, but none came from my doula-experienced wife. Just more and more silence. See, when a mom is in the middle of the agony of childbirth, they can't think about anything else, much less give calm, orderly instructions to the people around her. It's impossible. And Paul says, this is my pain. This is what I'm going through. This is what I feel. I have so much agony over you that I'll have no peace until this is resolved and labor is over. He's in those final few moments of childbirth and he's so consumed with the situation, he can't concentrate on anything else until there's resolution. Paul loves the Galatians. He loves them. He cares about them. This same love, this same care should mark every minister of the gospel. Every elder, every staff member, every deacon, every community group leader, every member, and every Christian. Well, friend, I ask you, how's your heart towards others today? I'll be the first to confess that at times my heart grows cold because I'm so consumed with myself, my agenda, my own schedule, my own rest time, my own to-do list, my needs, my wants, my desires, me, me, me. It's all about me. How are you doing? Is it all about you? Do you love the people God has put in your life? Or are they in the way of your happiness and comfort? It's a fair question to ask. Are there people you hurt for like Paul hurts for the Galatians? If not, there's a problem in your heart. What's the second thing we see about the minister here? To Paul became as they are. Paul became as they are. Verse 12. Because as I am, for I also have become as you are. Here Paul urges the Galatians to imitate him, to live as he does. To live not under the Mosaic law. The reason Paul gives for the command is that he has become like the readers. In other words, Paul, a Jew, has become like the Gentiles. Free from the law. So it makes no sense for the Gentiles then to become like Jews and to submit to the Old Testament law. It's ironic that... Here's this former Jew telling Gentiles not to submit to the law. They're trading places and it's baffling to Paul. Paul says, I've become as you are. When I came to you with the gospel, I set aside anything that would separate us in relating. I set aside all law. Well, what does this mean? 
Paul was a legalist. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He did it all, but when he came to Christ, he tore away from legalism. And he says, when I came to you, I behaved like you. It seems from other verses that Paul was careful not to even bring certain Jewish culture that could be confusing for the Gentiles. Paul was careful to be like them. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. To the Greeks, I became as a Greek. To those outside, I became as one outside. To those inside, I became as one inside. To the weak, I became weak. I became all things to all people that I might by all means win some. If Paul was ministering to the Gentiles, he would leave certain parts of Jewish culture behind us, not to offend them or create any barriers between them and the gospel. A minister is willing to go to people in such a way as to reach people with the gospel. Well, he gives us a third aim or a third goal as well. Three. He's willing to tell them truth at great cost. He's willing to speak truth into their lives at great cost to himself. Look at verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Some of us like to get around, get people around us who will simply flatter us, make us feel good about ourselves. We want our ears tickled. We don't want to be confronted with our sin. We'd rather be comfortable. But a true friend will speak truth into our hearts at even great cost to themselves. Proverbs 27 verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. It's the person who tells you the truth, even when it's difficult. It's that person who's a true friend. I know many of you are going through difficult times right now. Some of you are in marriages that are hard and you don't know what to do. Nobody knows because you haven't asked for help. Some of you are single and you desperately want to get married. And so you're tempted in your singleness to date or court someone you shouldn't. You might be tempted tempted to date an unbeliever or someone who's not quite mature because you think, well, disobedience to God is better than loneliness in this life. Others are in the midst of making poor financial decisions or having or have some difficult situations looming ahead of you. And you're tempted to cheat, you're tempted to steal, you're tempted to, to hoard your money. Instead of asking for help or letting someone into your situation, admitting your sin, being open about it. Maybe you have a job opportunity somewhere and it's a huge increase in pay. And you're tempted to take it, but you haven't sought wisdom as whether it would be good for your soul to take that job. Some have children who are wayward and you're wondering what to do. We have all sorts of steady pressures on our soul. and Here's what would be, would be easy for us. Either to keep it to ourselves or to just find people who won't challenge you with anything. They won't tell you not to marry that person you shouldn't. They won't warn you that what you're doing will wreck your soul. They won't tell you to fight sin. They'll just flatter you and tell you that there there, there won't be any real difficulties in marriage. Just go ahead and get married. Or that financially, if you just have enough faith, then God will rain down a flurry of 1,000 Durham bills from the sky and all your problems will go away. And all they do is tell you flattering works of how God's blessing will pour over you regardless of what you do. 
you leave those times with your friend happy. Happy because you love that someone made you feel happy in that moment. Paul loves the Galatians enough to warn them sternly and now to plead with them personally. Stay away from false teachers. Stay away. Paul says, and does this and pleads with them even at the risk of them now being his enemy. These people he loves. He loves them so much, even at the risk of them now hating him, being his very enemy. He cares more for their souls than whether they like him or not. Eternal joy matters more to Paul than temporary earthly happiness. So how are we doing with this? Are you a good friend? Do you have eternity in mind when you think of your relationships? Are you willing to speak hard truths to one another if it means it will rescue them from danger? Even if it's hard for them to hear. Even if it puts friction in the friendship. Are you open to the correction and rebuke of others? Have you put yourself in relationships where people speak into your life? Now, just to be clear, this is not merely the job of an elder. In fact, it never, ever, ever should start with an elder. Even when we read of church discipline in places like Matthew chapter 18, you always see one or two first approach the one in sin, then more, then the elders get involved, and eventually the church members get involved if needed. fellow Christian, fellow ministers of the gospel, fellow members of Redeemer Church of Dubai. Let's love people enough to speak truth into their hearts. Even if that risks friendship. Even if that causes us headache. Even if that's anxiety-ridden and difficult. Let us be willing for the sake of that person, for the sake of their souls, to be willing to speak into their hearts. Be a true friend. And be the kind of person who invites true friends into their life and allows them to stick around. Well, Paul gives us a fourth thing a minister should do. It's to appreciate the ministry of others. To appreciate the ministry of others. Verse 18. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. Not only when I'm present with you. Paul is fine with others making much of them for a good purpose. Not only when he's there, but even when he's gone. He's glad for other teachers to care for the Galatians. And to teach them as long as they're teaching the truth. If you read in Philippians chapter 1, we know that Paul's not a jealous teacher. Some are taking over my territory and preaching Christ even of contention. That's alright. I'm just glad Christ is being preached. He was sitting in a jail. Others were taking over for him. A new generation is coming along. He's old and dying in prison. And he says, that's fine. I've done my job. It's okay. If Christ is exalted, that's all I care about. He isn't jealous. Even when these preachers were preaching out of ill motives, Paul says, praise God the good news is going out. Praise God that they're preaching the truth. That's what I'm happy about. 
Friends, this is our aim at Redeemer as well. This is why we have a book stall filled with good books from other authors and preachers. This is why we encourage you to listen to good preaching online, to listen to good teachers who teach the same gospel as us. This is why we aim to pray and support other gospel work in this area. I had lunch last week with one of my good friends, Graham Thomas, one of the pastors of Fellowship of the Emirates that we prayed for earlier. So, wonderful friend. Their church meets across town, and we encouraged one another in ministry. We prayed for one another. Our churches may be different, but we believe the same gospel. We're not jealous or envious of them or others. We pray for them. Because it's not going to just take one church to reach this city or this country with the gospel. It's going to take hundreds of churches. It's going to take hundreds of gospel witnesses, those who preach the same gospel, those who are on the same team in this city, in this country. And so we pray for other churches in our prayer of petition each Friday. We're not in competition with them. We're not in some battle with them. We're not trying to be the best or the biggest or the most well-known. We want their success because it's ultimately not about ourselves. We're about the gospel going out. Here's an interesting question I once heard someone ask. If revival broke out in someone else's church in your city, would you celebrate it or would you be jealous? Friends, let's pray for revival to break out in other churches. Friends, let's pray for United Christian Church of Dubai. Let's pray for the Filipino Christian Church of Dubai and the other Tagalog-speaking churches in the city. Let's pray for Emirates Baptist Church International. Let's pray for Fellowship of the Emirates. Let's pray for the Arabic Evangelical Churches of Dubai and Sharjah and Fujairah. Let's pray for Grace Evangelical Church of Sharjah. And let's pray that revival would break out in those churches. Let's pray that the gospel would be preached clearly, that men, women, and children would come to know Jesus, that they would grow in grace. Friend, let's pray that God would build up his churches in this place. What was the fifth thing that Paul gives us that should be the aim, the goal of all ministers? And it's the ultimate goal of the minister of the gospel. It's that Christ be formed in others. That's the ultimate goal. It's the ultimate hope of the minister of the gospel of every Christian is that Christ be formed in others. That's the goal. That's why Paul labored. That's why Paul's in spiritual labor. It's why he's in anguish. He wants to see Christ formed in the Galatians. Paul won't be content until Christ so dominates their lives that they look like him. It's the goal of every single Christian's life. In Romans 8, we see that God's desire is to conform us to the image of his son. And this is our goal at Redeemer. Our goal is not to force compulsory religious attendance or activity, that you attend every Bible study, that you serve on every ministry team, but that Christ be formed in you. Our goal is from this moment to the moment you step off the sand of the Arabian Peninsula and go somewhere else, that you would love Jesus more and that you would look more like him. That's our number one goal. 
In fact, that's what success is for us as a church. It's not numbers on Friday morning. It's not how many ministries we have. It's that we as a church will be transformed to look like him. Period. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you need to know that Jesus Christ is the only way for you to have a changed life. You can't just try harder and hope things get better. From the first humans, Adam and Eve, our sins have resulted in devastating conditions. We all live in the rubble of the world's resulting brokenness, pain, sickness, suffering, sin, violence, crime, war, shattered relationships, disease, natural disaster, terrorists, death. And worst of all, We are all alienated from God. We look from side to side and all we see is the ruins of a broken world. And this is demonstrated most of all in our own sin. As much as we may try to improve our lives through reading self-help books, eating better, exercising more, stopping to smell the roses, even giving back to others, nothing works. These things can't save us from our sins. That's because the only true power is the power of God. The good news of the gospel is about nothing less than the redemption of fallen human beings and the restoration of fallen hearts. And God provides this through the life and death of Jesus. That God himself, Jesus, the son of God came, lived, died, and then rose from the dead. And it was there on the cross that God gives us and provides us a substitutionary atonement. That means he provides for us a substitute. Someone who went in our place to take the penalty the suffering, the sin, the death, the alienation that each of us deserves. Eternal life, forgiveness of sin, friendship with God, communion with other believers, a transformed life. Seeing Christ formed in you only starts when you first repent of your sin and believe in Christ to save you. When you do this, something incredible happens. The Bible says you are in Christ and that the Holy Spirit of God now dwells in you. And he begins to change you. He begins to transform you. Oh friend, repent of your sin and trust in Jesus to save you while you still can. Trust in him to save you from the wrath to come and let's watch God together begin to transform your life. To begin to change you from the inside out. And that's the minister's goal, is to see Christ formed in you. Let's move on to the second thing we see about the nature of ministry. We've seen the goal of the minister, the goal of the Christian. Now, the second thing Paul wants us to see here is the strategy of false teachers. The strategy of false teachers. Now, Paul first reminds the Galatians in these verses of their loving response to him, when he first came to preach to them. Look at verses 13 and following. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. They received Paul with open arms. But there's a reason they might have rejected Paul reason they might have been tempted to, to back off and not listen to him. 
There was something about his appearance that didn't coincide with him being an apostle. He tells about it in verse 13. Some kind of physical abnormality. It's likely to be the same thing as the thorn in the flesh Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians 12. Some say he had malaria. Others say it was another kind of sickness that left some kind of deformity. Could have been something contagious. Maybe they were nervous about catching it. I can relate to that. I don't like germs. There's confessions of a germophobic pastor. I don't like germs at all. I don't like being around someone who's sick because the whole time I'm around them, I'm worried about whether I'm going to get sick. And when they start sneezing or coughing, I'm trying to do some ninja-like moves to, to, to dodge the germs and karate chop them away. Must be why I like the television show Monk. You know, in that show, Mr. Monk is always carrying around with him a bag of wipes. You know, that's what the world really needs to be a better place, just more wipes. Maybe that's what the Galatians were struggling with. Maybe they ran out of wipes and were worried about catching a deadly disease from Paul. Or maybe he had a runny eye disease, something that made him look just really, really gross. They could hardly even look at him. Maybe that's why he mentions in verse 15, they were even willing to give him their eyes. Perhaps his sickness placed a burden of time on them, a burden of money, energy. The Galatians waited on him day and night, perhaps. Whatever it was, it was bad. A lot of people, though, when they read these verses, they have a problem with them. Because they say that God can't allow sickness for a man of God. So what the folks who believe the health and wealth prosperity gospel often say. But think about it. This is the Apostle Paul. He's sick. He's not getting healed. He tells that he prayed a number of times in 2 Corinthians for this thorn to be taken away, but God just leaves it. If Paul's not healed as an apostle, one who's been shipwrecked for his faith, one who's been beaten and imprisoned for his faith, one who is a follower of Christ, has seen Christ, then why should we think that any one of us will automatically be healed because we love Jesus? Many of you know that I have a terrible nerve disease, multiple surgeries over the years on both of my arms, tried every last medication, cream, injection, procedure to try to heal them, and yet nothing's helped. I'm still in pain. And many have come up to me and said, well, pastor, pastor, because you love Jesus, because you're so close to God as a minister, God will heal you. Well, I'm thankful for their encouragement. I'm thankful for their support. I'm thankful for their prayers and your prayers. That's not entirely true. Now, it may happen. I know for sure it will happen one day in heaven. There'll be no pain, no suffering, no tears, no handicaps, no disabilities, But I may never get healed on earth, regardless of how much faith I have, regardless of how close to Jesus I am. This fits with the life of Christ on earth, doesn't it? When we consider Christ's ministry, it's one of a suffering Savior, of one who suffered pain and rejection and died on the cross so that we could live. See, friend, to follow him means we suffer. To pick up our cross means we suffer if we follow Jesus. There will be pain. There's no promise from God that I'll be healed, and yet God has a purpose in my pain, and he had a purpose in Paul's pain. It's interesting because if God didn't allow Paul's illness, we wouldn't have the book of Galatians. 
He says, the reason I came there was because I was sick. Friends, Paul's sickness was not a liability for the spread of the gospel. Rather, it was through the weakness of Paul that there was a pathway through which Christ's strength was manifested through him. God doesn't move in spite of weakness. God moves through weakness. He writes in 2 Corinthians 12 what God had been teaching him. That my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul writes his response to God. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God uses suffering for the dissemination of the gospel. Whatever Paul's sickness was, God used it for the sake of the gospel. But it wasn't without difficulty for the Galatians. And yet they didn't despise Paul, they didn't reject Paul, but received him like they would an angel of God or even Jesus Christ himself. This is an incredible response. So how could they turn on him now? Paul is baffled. He's stunned that these are the same people. Same people who accepted him like an angel. Or like the Savior. He says, I came to you sick as a dog. I didn't even come to stay with you. You weren't even on my plans. I came there because I was sick. Because I was ugly in every way. But you didn't just bear it. You received me like an angel. They were even willing to give him their eyes. They were ready to do anything for Paul. When Paul left Galatia, he must have been saying to Barnabas, Wow, this was such an encouraging time. These people were so great. These Galatians are amazing. Incredibly generous. So kind. So gracious. But then something drastic changed. Look at verses 15 through 17. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you, That if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. All of a sudden, just a moment here, the Galatians, they've gone from showing incredible love to Paul to treating him like an enemy. Something has happened. That's all because of these false teachers who've intruded. Now we know what these false teachers were teaching. He's been talking about it the entire book. Jesus plus works. Faith plus works. But we get some amazing insights into the strategies of the false teachers in verse 17. In a sense we see from Paul the anatomy of apostasy. Or you could title this section, How a Cult Gets Started. And he mentions three things in verse 17 alone. First, they flatter you. These false teachers flatter you. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. This phrase, they make much of you, means they pay court to you. It's the idea of a lover courting his lady. He says all nice things to her, whispers sweet nothings to her in his pursuit of her. These false teachers were doing the same thing. This is what false teachers do. They're quite impressive in showing their care and concern for you. They'll reorganize their schedule to be with you. 
They'll text you and call you, pray for you, go above and beyond what anyone else is doing. They'll make you feel like you're the most important person in their life. Like a man courting the woman he wants to date and marry. It's the same kind of pursuit these false teachers lay on the Galatians. This sounds like every cult, doesn't it? Some of you have come to faith in Christ after being involved in a cult. And so this probably sounds all too familiar. Every one of them is the same story, the same deal. The devil isn't really creative. He knows what works and he uses the same story over and over again. He's too smart to show up at church here in red tights and a pitchfork in his hand. If he showed up that way, none of us would follow him. But the false teacher shows up looking just like you and me. And in many ways, they care better for people than we do. See, Paul may have been disfigured. He may have been sick. He leaves, and here comes these false teachers. Perhaps they were charming, dynamic. Maybe they had good credentials. Maybe they showed an incredible knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures and amazed the Galatians with incredible theology classes. They visited the Galatians when they were sick, devoted attention to them. Maybe they wrote personal notes and they began slowly to woo them away from Paul. We tend to think that false teachers will have a nasty demeanor when actually the reverse is true. Typically in church history, heretics have been positively charming. If you're trying to get Christians to buy something other than Jesus, you need to have a good sales pitch. Now, true elders and shepherds care for you too, but the motivation is different. False teachers flatter to win people to themselves, but true shepherds care for you and selflessly point you to Jesus. Good elders and leaders may do all the things I've mentioned above, but they do so So that Christ is formed in you. A completely different motivation. These false teachers went out to the Galatians to win them by flattery, but it wasn't for their good. It looked honest, but it wasn't. That's the first thing. Let me give you a second thing Paul tells us about cults and false teachers. They'll cause division between you and the church. They'll put a wall, a barrier, a division between you and the church. Again, verse 17, they want to shut you out. They wanted them to leave the church and to obey and adopt the Jewish ways. They wanted control. The word shut out literally means to bar the door. They wanted to exclude and lock them out of God's people and God's blessings. It's the same today. Colts are out after people and they court them. They come on so moral, so ethical, so lovable, so nice, and they shut you out from the church and others in the church. They form private meetings, exclusive clubs. They won't outright say the Bible's not true. That'd be far too obvious. No one will come into a church service and say, I want to lead a cult. Who's with me? No, no one does that because it won't work. No Christian would be swayed. You would think that guy's crazy. No, they almost always claim a high view of the Bible. But then they'll say, well, have you also seen this exclusive book over here? Look at this book over here. It has extra special truth in addition to the Bible. Or, they're even more sly than that. They'll just stick to the Bible. But they'll begin to say everyone else's interpretation of the Bible is wrong. And they'll claim to be the one with the correct interpretation. 
They'll dazzle you with the original languages, teach you things you've never heard before, or show you new spiritual disciplines that'll bring you closer to God than you've ever been before. They'll eventually assume authority in your life, and they'll tell you what to do, where to go, how much money to give them, and on and on and on. But at that point, you might not object because they've built such a great rapport with you and you actually start to defend them. Or they put so much fear into your heart that you can't speak out against them. Now, these false teachers want to drive a wedge between you and God. They want to shut you out from the people of God and eventually they'll get you to turn on the church. I've seen this time and time again with people that love God and love the church and yet some False teachers come in and slowly begin to seed seeds of doubt in their heart. And eventually they'll turn away from the church. They'll become an enemy of the church. They'll fight against the church. And eventually turn away from the church and from Christ. There's a third thing Paul tells us regarding cult leaders, false teachers. That they need and want your adoration. They need They want your adoration, your applause. The end of verse 17, they want to shut you out. And then here's the reason. That you may make much of them. That's their motivation. They want you to like them. At the end of the day, the false teacher craves that you love them. They want your adoration. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called this human absorption. He says... A strong personality can so dominate a group or an individual that people in the end yield to him and are overcome and drawn into his spell. The primary loyalty is not really to Christ, for he has not worthily been formed. Loyalty is given to the individual, and therefore opposition to that charismatic personality or false teacher or involvement in the cause becomes impossible. It's about them. It's not about Jesus. These false teachers want you to like them. So if you won't have anything to do with them, they'll kick you out. They'll get around them people who like them and will follow them. But the moment they face correction, they fight and then they flee. They won't let anyone in who opposes them. They won't listen to authority. They get their authority from their interpretation of Scripture and not in Scripture itself. They get their authority from what they think the scripture says. Now this is very important for us to understand. This is how crazy interpretations get out there. They ignore the whole of scripture. They ignore the storyline of scripture. And they pick and choose portions of scripture to reinterpret to support their cause. And if you do that, you can make scripture say anything you want it to say. When you twist it and pull it out of context. Friends, we are to gather around the teacher who asks us to gather not around him, but around Christ. Redeemer family, I plead with you, be careful. Be very, very careful. False teachers are wolves in sheep's clothing. The purpose of the true minister is to see Christ formed in us. We are not to look at the externals of elders or deacons or community group leaders or church members. We don't gather around the person with the brightest smile, the funniest jokes, the most charismatic personality, the best dressed, nicest man or woman, the one who has the theological degree or is fluent in Greek. 
Friends, you need people like Paul in your life who are willing to speak truth in your life. You need teachers, you need preachers, you need other Christians who are not necessarily clergy, but have the gospel at the center of their lives. There's a place in Hebrews chapter 13 where it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. It says, do not make them do their job with groaning, for that would be of no benefit to you. Friends, you need to have people in a church to whom you're accountable to. How can you obey that verse unless you're in some kind of relationship, unless you've gone to some church where you look at the leaders, you look at the pastor, you look at the elders, you look at the deacons, you look at the community group leaders, you look at the members, and you say, these are the people to whom I'm accountable to. These are the people who can speak into my life and check my heart when I begin to drift away in any kind of sin. These are the people who will encourage me and I walk with God. Friends, do you have that? Are you trusting in their collective, their collective wisdom and care for you? The Bible says that you need them. I need them. I need you. And we need each other. Paul is in agonizing spiritual and emotional anguish regarding what's going on. His spiritual children are wandering off, and this is his emotional appeal. Brothers, little children, come back. Please don't go. Friends, this is the longing of my heart as well. It's funny, in some ways, I'm like Paul. Not in the apostolic way, not in the incredible preacher kind of way, but I am handicapped like he was. Maybe not in exactly the same way. I have very little use of my arms except to move them around when I preach, which I love to do. But I can't lift much. I can't drive a car. The pain is always there and it causes me to be less mobile. It's a trial for me. As a fellow church member, it's a trial for you. It affects you. It's a trial for all of us. I'm like Paul in physical pain, and I'm like Paul in emotional and spiritual pain for you. I love you so much that I eagerly desire to see Christ formed in you. Singles, fathers, mothers, the widow, the divorce. Teenagers, children, the sick, the wealthy, the poor. Those of you from far away, those of you from here. Friends, family, I long for Christ to be formed in you. I long for you to know and love Jesus more and more and more. I long for you to look more like him. That's my chief prayer. That's the chief prayer of each of the elders in this church, that you would grow in your love for Jesus, and then day by day by day by day, he would be formed in you. Friends, Dubai is filled with false teachers, those who want to make much of you, those who promise you stuff if you follow them, those who oppose the gospel of grace, those who want to turn you against the church. Friends, I earnestly appeal to you, don't be persuaded by these false teachers. For those of you who I know are considering false teachings like these, friend, I feel like Paul. Distracted 
and in the pains of childbirth until I know it's resolved, until I know that you've rejected this teaching, these teachings that Dubai has brought to us, these teachings that these false teachers have claimed. There's so many of them out there. Oh, friend, I plead with you, turn from them if you're chasing after them. Turn to Jesus. Check everything you hear from this from this from false teachers from the scriptures from everything you hear from us check the scriptures to make sure what we're saying is true be like the Bereans in Acts who diligently searched the scriptures to see if what the apostles were saying was true and may our pursuit of Christ together in his word may it transform our hearts and friends may Christ be formed in us let's pray together Father, we pray for us who are in attendance today that we would strive to know you. We would seek to see Christ formed in ourselves and each other. Would we plead with those who are going astray? Father, even if it means losing friendship. Father, we pray that this flock would be kept from false teachers and that we would remain in the truth. Protect us. Keep us. May we worship you in all truth, in all knowledge, and with all love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, friends, let us stand now as we sing our closing two songs as a response to the teaching.